This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. You know, democracy is very, it hangs there by a thread, really. It hangs there at the will of the people, without the agreement of the people to live under those circumstances that will not exist. Welcome to Politics is Everything, a podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara Ong-Whaley. I'm Nate Wells. I'm a second year at UVA, and I'm an intern for the Center for Politics. In this episode, we talk with Clint Hill, who will forever be remembered as the courageous Secret Service agent who leapt onto the back of the presidential limousine in the midst of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy in Dallas on November 22, 1963. Mr. Hill's primary responsibility was the protection of First Lady Jacqueline Kennedy, and for his actions in 1963, Hill received the nation's highest civilian award for bravery. Mr. Hill rose through the ranks of the Secret Service to become the assistant director, responsible for all protective forces, having served five administrations, including that of President Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, and Ford. Lisa McCubbin Hill also joins us. She is an award-winning journalist who has been a television news anchor and reporter for NBC, ABC, and CBS. She hosted her own talk radio show and spent more than five years in the Middle East as a freelance writer. Clint Hill and Lisa McCubbin Hill join us to discuss their new book, My Travels with Mrs. Kennedy. Clint and Lisa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. Can you start by sharing how this book came about and what do you hope the public will learn from it? Well, the new book came about, uh, I owned a home in Alexandria, Virginia that I'd had for almost 50 years and it was time to sell it. I hadn't been living in it. And so Lisa and I went back there in 2019 with the idea of cleaning it out, putting it up for sale. In that process, there was material in most rooms, including the garage, and in the garage, we found a trunk. And that trunk was had a big painted address on the front of it. It said, Clint Hill, the White House, Washington, D.C. <laughs> and Lisa's immediate question was, what is that? What's this all about? What's in it? <laughs> yes. And she was very curious, and she immediately wanted to open it. I restrained her. I told her that it might be best to wait to open it since that area of my home, the garage was underneath the house, had been flooded a few years prior to that time. And uh, I had no idea what was in that trunk, but it probably was all ruined or it was probably full of worms or something. And so with the mention of worms, she decided it would probably might be a good idea to wait to get some rubber gloves and things. And so that's what we did. But anyway, we went home, went to the hotel where we were staying that night and came back in the morning with all the necessary material to uh, face whatever it was we were gonna face. <laughs> rubber gloves, garbage bags. We really, you know, I wasn't expecting much. And, but then we opened it and I, I said to him, I feel like we're opening King Tut's tomb. And so I think we should videotape it, you know, just in case there was something in there. And so I handed Clint my iPhone and um, he said, OK, Madam Director, you know, what do I do? And so he actually videotaped it as we opened up the trunk. 
and um, we were pleasantly surprised with what we found inside. Very true. Uh, we were actually looking for Clint's medal that he was given after the assassination for, uh, for bravery because he didn't know where it was. And so we thought, well, maybe it was in this trunk. And in the trunk were all of these little boxes and they needed to be opened. And we ended up finding all kinds of um, presidential gifts, tie clips, um, unopened Air Force One playing cards, which Clint said, oh, see, it's just a bunch of junk. And I said, well, a lot of people might not think this is junk. They might think it's history. <laughs> and so we started pulling out things like that. So the book evolves as we go through this trunk and find um, different things, each of which brings back memories for Clint of his travels with Jacqueline Kennedy, along with other items that, that he uncovers um, in his office in the basement of the house, things he had totally forgotten about. And, um, you know, it was, it was a great journey and um, it turned out to be a good basis for the book. In the book, you write about how you realized while traveling in Paris how astute and educated the First Lady was. What misconceptions about Jackie Kennedy exist, and how would you like to set the record straight on those misconceptions? Well, Mrs. Kennedy was much more down-to-earth than most people realize. They think she's a clothes horse, that she it's her only uh, thing in life is uh, expensive clothing. Uh, that's just the smallest portion of her life. She was, first of all, a wife, a mother. She was thrown into a position in which there's no job description called the first lady. She did not want to be called the first lady. She thought that was a symbol, probably a good name for a racehorse, <laughs> but it wasn't for her. And uh, she, uh, she, she was just an honest to goodness, hardworking, extremely intelligent, great athlete. She played golf, tennis, water skied, was an excellent equestrian. Um, and on top of all that, she was a wonderful mother. And uh, one of the things she loved most was going to a place like Middleburg, Virginia, where she could be away from the maddening crowds and she and the children could walk the streets and the sidewalks and be greeted just with a good morning. How are you? No request for autographs, no long conversation, just normal human being behavior. And that's what she loved most of all. And she could participate in things there that were beyond what most people would understand. And, we cover that in this book, with not only with words, but with some photographs of she in her raincoat and galoshes leading Caroline with a lead uh, through a process they called a, a pony club. And uh, it was wonderful to see she was so down to earth. Now you, you say, how about other first ladies? I don't think any of them ever uh, came to the up to her standard. She, she did so many things. For example, Lafayette Park, which sits directly across the street from the White House, when she and her husband uh, became, when he became president in 
January 1961. The idea was that perhaps all those small one, two-story buildings surrounding Lafayette Park should be removed and high-rises should be constructed. She didn't like that idea. She fought to have what was there retained and improved. And over a period of time, she got her way. And just recently, here in uh, this day and age, 2022, 2022, she was recognized by a plaque being placed in Lafayette Park, honoring her for doing just that. She also uh, changed the way the White House was decorated. Uh, prior to her arrival, it was decorated with things from all over the world, not just United American things or United things from the United States. Her idea was to be it should be a historical significance to people to have their own material there, representative of the United States way of life. And she uh, formed the White House uh, committee for that purpose. So there are many things like that. Other first ladies, uh, they were not bilingual like she was. She spoke uh, French, Italian, Spanish. And uh, whenever we went abroad and she was in a situation where that was useful and she began to speak in the native tongue that we were visiting a country, the people would go crazy. I mean, they would just love to hear her speak in their native language. She became a wonderful ambassador, which became. You just touched on Middleburg briefly. In Middleburg, you state that Mrs. Kendi could almost have a normal life. Can you elaborate on why that was important and whether you think that in today's digital age, a member of the first family can have a near normal life anywhere? Well, I imagine it's possible in this age, but it's, I think, probably less likely today because of mass media. And, uh, you know, the uh, cell phones, the internet, Facebook, all that stuff, Instagram, that contributes a great deal to providing information. And that information can sometimes be damaging to an individual who seeks privacy or seeks a very kind of subdued way of life. So uh, I doubt very much if a present first lady could have that kind of lifestyle. Uh And why was that important um, for her? Because she wanted, she wanted specifically to have her children grow up as normal as possible. She didn't like the idea that they were going to be advantaged and, uh, you know, pointed out as being special. She didn't like that. She wanted them to be accepted for what they did and what they uh, accomplished in life. And uh, she was very adamant that we, the agents who were around, she and the children, not take special care of those kids that we sure we wanted to protect them. But if they fell down there to get up on their own, if they had a, uh, an elbow that hurt, they better, you know, be cautious and, and take care of it. And sure, we'll get it taken care of by the medical profession if, if necessary. But she wanted everything possible to be just as normal as human beings can make it for her children. 
You also discussed in the book how Mrs. Kennedy met with the Queen Elizabeth II and how she was also at the coronation. Some might call Jackie Kennedy American royalty based on the way the public viewed her. How do you think this parallel played out? They were very attractive. Yes, and they had a lot of money. I mean, they were very wealthy. They had a lot of things in life that everybody wished they had, did not have. Uh, that was the most part of it, I think. And they were very successful in everything that they did. And so, uh, and I mean, people were envious of them. Uh, and it also came at a time after um, <laughs> President Eisenhower and his wife, you know, they were more like a grandmother and grandfather. And now you have this, you know, young man and his young wife. Um, she was just 31 years old when she became first lady. And um, she, they had a young daughter who was, you know, three years old and then had a son that was born while he was still president elect. So it was, you know, I think um, America is having this new young family there in the White House was something refreshing and people were were just loved them and followed their every move. Yeah, like she was just 31. And I guess the queen was at that time 34. Uh, so, I mean, when they got together, they had a great deal of similarity. They had young children. They were placed in positions that they hadn't selected for themselves. Somebody else had put it, placed the, the position on them. Uh, <clears throat> so they had a lot of things in common. They both loved horses. They both loved dogs. <laughs> there, were, there were just a lot of things they could talk about. Now, if you ever watch a program called The Crown, there are certain segments of it. They have made up stuff you wouldn't believe. It's not true. I mean, they have her going to see Mrs. See a queen at Windsor Castle? That never happened. <laughs> but I mean, it made a good story. Mr. Hill, I wonder if you can talk about what President Kennedy's assassination can teach us about the fragility of democracy. When you travel as much as we did, you see the, the difference between our way of life and the way of life of things in other countries, for example, Pakistan, India, Iran, Greece, Morocco. Colombia, Venezuela, these are places that we actually visited and traveled to. And you compare, and no, nobody has a, a life like we have in the United States, to be honest with you. We're, we, have, we have freedom, we have responsibility. Uh, some people take that responsibility to be <coughs> more... I don't know how you want to, yeah, I want to put it really, but they uh, misused it, uh, and that's reprehensible. Uh, but you know, it's wonderful to see, and I'm so pleased to be a United States citizen, having been as many places in the world as I've been, without the proper, you know arrangements. This is, for example, in the United States, the vice president immediately becomes the president if that situation develops where the president is no longer <coughs> capable of holding office. So, you know, democracy is very 
it hangs there by a thread, really. Uh, it hangs there at the will of the people. Without the agreement of the people to live under those circumstances, it will not exist. And when it is in jeopardy, or it has been jeopardized by individuals or groups or power mongers, I guess, uh, it's very difficult uh, to watch if you're one of those like myself who accepts, accepts the wonders of democracy and living in that kind of a, a world. Uh, I don't want to change it for a, becoming a banana republic or uh, having some authoritarian government or leader taking over and making all the decisions on their own. I want the people as a whole to make the decisions. And that's what democracy is. It's the government of the people, for the people, by the people. And uh, it is fragile. And uh, right now we're going through a period like that. It's very fragile and it can go either way. We must be careful. Mr. Hill, in the book you open up about suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder and the immense guilt you faced after President Kennedy's assassination, can you talk about how you've managed to cope with the assassination in the six decades since? What advice would you have to law enforcement and first responders who might have similar feelings in the wake of the January 6th insurrection, mass shootings, and other mass traumas our country is facing? Well, I went through this period of uh, extreme depression, uh, starting right after the assassination. I, and it just continued to get worse. By 1975, I couldn't even pass the Secret Service physical examination because the PTSD, it didn't even have a name at that time, uh, was affecting me so much in various parts of my body physically that was I couldn't pass the physical. So they had to retire me. That, I, I did, you know, made the depression worse for a while. And I finally started to get better a little bit back in about 1980, um, 82. And, uh, but I never really improved much until I was thrown into a situation in 2009. I was asked by a friend of mine who had been an agent in the Secret Service and had left the Secret Service and gone on to <clears throat> bigger and more prestigious things in the security business. Jerry Blaine was his name. He wanted me to speak to a author that he had employed and it was helping him write a book about his experience in the Secret Service. I didn't want to do that. The reason he wanted it to be me was because he had not been in Dallas at the time of the assassination. And he knew that I was the only one who really had that kind of information. 
And so he and I battered for a long time. Finally, I said, okay, just bring it on. I'll talk to her, the person you've selected. And so the arrangements were made for me to meet a young gal named Lisa McCubbin at the Hay Adams Hotel in Washington, D.C. And so I went there, introduced myself. I told Miss McCubbin that <coughs> I would give her two hours of time. She had arranged for a conference room for an interview with me. So we went in there and she started asking me questions. She would one question after another. She didn't really cover anything. You couldn't get someplace else on the internet or somewhere else. And I looked at my watch and I said, two hours are over. And so she realized I wasn't going to say anymore. But she asked me a question and I made a stupid mistake. She said, oh, Mr. Hill, she said, I may have some follow-up questions. May I have your telephone number? And like a fool, I gave her my telephone number. Now, if you're in my business, you never give a member of the media your telephone number. <laughs> but I did. She was at that time living in Doha, Qatar. I was living in Virginia. From that point on, my phone would ring. It would be, she would be calling. And it started out once a week. Pretty soon it was twice a week. Four times a week. Every day. Twice a day. I mean, it got to be just constant. And in my giving information to her about what had happened in Dallas, the assassination of President Kennedy, really seemed to help me. Some of that depression was gone. So I agreed then to uh, accompany she and some other agents to go to Dallas in 2010 and to tape a um, documentary for his history discovery discovery channel and we did that and uh, she and I got to know each other even better and then the book came out and the uh, publisher asked me to accompany Mr. Blaine and his wife Joyce and Miss McCubbin on a book uh, tour around the country um, which we did, we did, and I had to, at that time then, talk about this period of time to the public. And at first it was really awful. I mean, I'd break down, I'd start to cry. Uh, but over time, I could feel that sense of guilt kind of, not the guilt leaving, but the the effect it was having on me leaving. And I was doing better. And then uh, between Miss McCubbin and Simon and Schuster, the publisher, we, they were convinced us to write a book our, on our own. 
about my experience with Mrs. Kennedy. And so we wrote a book called uh, Mrs. Kennedy and Me. And uh, during the book tours of that book, it was even more prevalent that we spoke to more places than ever before. And I really had to confront the issues that uh, I had failed to confront. I mean, things like John saluting his father's casket outside the church or the death of uh, young Patrick Bouvier Kennedy, things that I had really didn't want to discuss, but now I had to. And so my advice to anybody who suffers from PTSD, whether it's military personnel, <coughs> law enforcement personnel, law enforcement personnel, fire department, anybody, you've got to discuss and talk about the issue that's causing you the problem. So find yourself either your spouse, a priest, a rabbi, whoever it might be, a minister, just a good friend, anybody, and talk about what the issue is that's bothering you. The more you talk about it, the more you get it out of your system verbally, the better off you're going to feel. We are recording this conversation on October 14th, and yesterday there was a committee meeting uh, investigating the January 6th attacks on the Capitol. And at that committee meeting, as I'm sure you know, new information and voluminous information was released about the Secret Service. Um, now, you may or may want to talk about <laughs> what we learned from that, but we're particularly interested in your perspective in how the Secret Service has changed since the time you served. Well, it has changed dramatically. I don't know if you know or not, but when I came into the Secret Service, there were only 269 agents in the entire world. That's all there were. Now, I would, I'm not even sure of the number. It's, it's more, it's in the thousands. So um, that in and of, in of itself is a big change. Uh, we, did, we had very little formal training. We had, we would go, first thing we were sent to as agents, I tell you what, I'll just go through my experience. I was sworn in in Denver, Colorado as an agent because I was replacing an agent who had been there but who has now been transferred to the White House detail to protect President Eisenhower. It was 1958. Previously, I'd been an intelligence agent for the U.S. Army in the Counterintelligence Corps. <clears throat> when I was sworn in by the Secret Service, I was issued a handgun, some cartridges, a gun uh, holster, a cartridge container, a badge, badge number 50, that had been used by a guy that retired recently. And I wasn't even given credentials because they didn't have my credentials made yet. I was immediately after I was sworn in, I was taken to the U.S. Mint in Denver where they had a shooting range to qualify with my pistol. And I qualified, and then shortly thereafter, I was placed on a protective assignment. That's how quick things happened in 1958, because there weren't any other people that did the job. I mean, they were we were lacking personnel crazy. Same thing like in Dallas. 
when we went to Dallas in 1963, working the follow-up car that day, one of the agents had been on the detail a week, maybe 10 days. A second agent who had been in the service for a couple years or more, that's the yeah, about two years, I think, had never worked a presidential motorcade in a follow-up car position before. The agent on the opposite side, who was the senior shift agent to the president, had experience. I had experience. The driver had experience, and the person in the right front seat had experience. In the back seat was an agent who was an intelligence gathering agent. He wasn't any protective agent. And a uh, former uniformed police officer who had just become an agent was handling the rifle. And then there were two Kennedy staff members on the back seat of the car. So you can see we were very lacked in experience. We had few people and it showed, I guess. Now, I know uh, when I first went, I go back to the White House, or I used to, uh, every year, just before Christmas. There'd be a meeting of former agents in charge of presidential protection. We would meet at the White House. We'd have the day together. In the afternoon, we usually go in and see the president briefly. Um, but we would discuss in those meetings things, how things had improved, how they, maybe the numbers didn't do the job that we thought they would do. But it was, it was very interesting. And uh, I'm very grateful that I had that opportunity. I'm very fortunate to have had the experiences I've had. I just, it's amazing to me that how this kid, me, can come out of North Virginia, North Dakota, and grow up and become assigned to the President of the United States at the White House in Washington, D.C. It just shouldn't happen that way, I wouldn't think, but it did. Now, insofar as what was said yesterday on the January 6th committee, since I don't have any first-hand knowledge of anything that the Secret Service did or did not do, I really can't commentary, make a comment about uh, what has been said because I don't know if it's true or false. Um, I don't know who they've talked to, who they haven't talked to. I know the names, some of the names have been bantied about, and I have met those people myself uh, on occasion, rarely, maybe twice I've met two of them. And... Uh, but I don't know them as a personal friend or anything. So, and I really haven't had any contact with anybody who can give me any first-hand information, so I don't really know. Towards the end of your new book, you discussed your special bond with Mrs. Kennedy. Would you mind elaborating on that? And if you can share one thing that you think the world should know um, about and learn from Jackie Kennedy. Well, we, we did become close. When my first was assigned to her was on the Friday after the election in 1960. I guess it was the 11th of November. Um, she and her husband had been at Cape, Cape Cod and Hyattsport 
and we're now they've flown to Washington at home in Georgetown, 3307 N Street Northwest. And she came to that home and I went out there and I met her. She didn't want to see me. I wasn't very happy about the assignment. I didn't want to be assigned to a first lady. I wanted to be assigned to the president because I knew that's where the action was. And in the past, assignment to a first lady meant nothing was going to happen that was of any interest whatsoever. Well, it turned out to be very, very wrong. I ended up with the best assignment in the Secret Service. I mean, it, it's just unimaginable how wonderful that assignment I had turned out to be. The bond really grew. After, you know, she indicated she didn't want anybody there, but she realized it was necessary here. And it, it just, we, the more I was with her, the more respect I had for her, the more respect she had for me, the more she trusted me, the more I trusted her, <coughs> the tighter the bond became. And by the time I left in 1964, because they had to, let me stay with her for a year after the assassination, and so I didn't leave her until November of 1964. By that time, we were very close in a very unromantic way. I mean, it was strictly respect, um, appreciation. I really appreciated what a great job she was doing or had done as First Lady. And for the United States as a whole, specifically on her trips abroad, and she was very appreciative toward me of her, my keeping, giving her as much privacy as possible and protecting her as best I could. And so we left uh, in very good <clears throat> relationship when, when I went back to the White House, which was my new assignment. Well, thank you uh, for taking your time today to talk with us. Um, we definitely really appreciated hearing about your time with Mrs. Kennedy and um, your time in the Secret Service. Thank you so much, Clint Hill and Lisa McCubbin Hill for joining us on Politics is Everything. Thank you. Thank you. Listeners, there's a link in the podcast notes to purchase their new book, My Travels with Mrs. Kennedy. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Politics is Everything. Editing and production was done by me. Our theme song is Let's Boogie by Chris Faye. Learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. Be sure to also follow us on Twitter at center number four politics. You can also send us a recording of your questions or ideas for strengthening democracy to goodpolitics at virginia.edu. Until next time.